Uh, thanks, Eduardo. Uh, we've already had a really useful introduction uh, to filter bubbles, so I'll just uh, get straight on with it. Um, I think it's worth just sort of clarifying what I personally mean when I talk about filter bubbles. It's kind of a working definition that I'll use. It's important to keep in mind, I think, that uh, there isn't a huge amount of clarity uh, in this area. Uh, people have adopted different definitions for filter bubbles, echo chambers, and these things uh, are often used uh, interchangeably, but I'll try and explain exactly what I mean by it. So we already know that people use services like Facebook, Twitter, Google, Apple News, and a range of others uh, to get news. Uh, and some of the news that people see when they're using these platforms has been selected automatically uh, by algorithms. Now, we know that the selection decisions are made by algorithms using data that have been collected by platforms based on our past use and also data that we voluntarily give to uh, platforms. And the fear is, of course, that this could reinforce existing consumption patterns. Now, I personally think that echo chambers and filter bubbles are slightly different. So I think echo chambers is a useful term to describe what might happen uh, when we are overexposed uh, to news that we like or agree with, thus potentially distorting our perception of the underlying reality because we see too much of one side, not enough of the other, and we start to think perhaps that reality is like this. Filter bubbles, I think are, uh, it's worth distinguishing them. I think they're slightly different because I think here, what we're talking about is a situation where news that we dislike or disagree with is automatically filtered out. And this might have the effect of narrowing uh, what we know. And I think the reason this distinction is important is because echo chambers could be a result of filtering or they could be a result of other processes. But filter bubbles, uh, I think, have to uh, potentially be a, a result of algorithmic filtering. So I think there is, there is a difference. I'll come back to some of these definitions a bit later on. Um, and Eduardo has already pointed out uh, the prominence that these ideas and filter bubbles in particular have had on the discourse, the way we understand politics uh, since uh, the election of Trump and also Brexit and a number of other uh, sort of kind of surprising political events that we've experienced uh, in the last few years. I could have chosen a range of different uh, headlines to sort of illustrate this, but I've chosen two. The first is from Wired magazine. Uh, your filter bubble is destroying democracy, which is quite a, a bold claim, I think we'll agree. And filter bubbles are a serious problem with news, says Bill Gates. And the reason I picked these is because it, I think it shows the kind of the extent to which these ideas have taken hold uh, from two sources that are not exactly sort of technology skeptics, Wired Magazine and Bill Gates. So it's not something that's confined to a particular sort of area of, uh, of commentators who, are, who have always been critical of tech, it's something that's sort of kind of widely accepted in many circles. And I think it's part of this is because the, the, the filter bubbles and metaphor is very powerful. We can visualize it straight away and we can easily understand it. And secondly, because I think that the, the mechanisms which I described and Eduardo has alluded to seem quite plausible. I think that, you know, everyone can understand it and it kind of makes sense. Uh, but is this something that we can see when we look at uh, empirical data and look at this problem dispassionately and independently? What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some of the research that we've done at the Reuters Institute on this topic. Um, of course, I'm not, I can't cover all of the research in this area, uh, but I think that even though I'm going to focus on the work we've done, I think it is broadly representative of the 
the kind of state of the art in the field. Of course, uh, there isn't a sort of 100% consensus one way or the other on uh, whether filter bubbles are, are real and how strong they are, but I think that I'm giving a fair characterization. So most of the data uh, that I've collected uh, with uh, a team of people at the Reuters Institute uh, comes from a project called the Digital News Report, which Eduardo has already mentioned. And this is our annual survey of news use uh, in 38 different markets across five continents, mostly uh, in Europe. So in 2019, we conducted an online survey with 75,000 uh, respondents. Uh, the polling was done by YouGov, but we designed the, the questionnaire. And if you're interested in the project, you can learn more about it at digitalnewsreport.com, uh, uh, where you can download our publications uh, for free. So I think it's useful to to start at the very beginning, to try and get to the bottom of some of the, the claims uh, around filter bubbles. So perhaps the, the easiest place to start is to ask whether people are actually using the internet to get news. And I think it's a clear yes. So in the survey, when we asked people uh, what their main source of news is, uh, roughly equal numbers of people, with some national variation, but roughly equal numbers of people say online and television. And you can see how far these two sources are compared to, to print and radio, where fewer than one in 10 say that these are their main source uh, of news. As I say, there is some national variation. It's important to keep this uh, in mind. In some countries, TV is slightly ahead. In some countries, online is slightly ahead. But generally speaking, we do see a very similar pattern with online and TV quite far ahead uh, as a main source of news uh, in most countries. Now, we also see differences when we look at age groups. So not surprisingly, if we look at the group that are under 45 uh, compared to the group that are over 45, we, we see big differences. So amongst uh, 35 to 44 year olds, 53% say uh, online is their main source of news uh, and 36% say television. For groups older than this, then TV is more likely to be people's main source of news, but for groups that are younger than this, uh, then they're more likely to say it's online. Now, I think this is important because there's always been these kind of generational differences in media use. But I think whereas in the past we saw that as people got older, their habits changed, I wonder whether this will, will happen uh, going forward. Because I think that it, to me it's unlikely that uh, people who are aged 18 to 44 are going to suddenly stop using online media and start going back to television. This is something that sort of happened in the past as people settled down, but I think it's, it's difficult to imagine people going back to linear scheduled TV uh, as a source of news. So I think we can learn something about what might happen uh, in the future uh, from data like this. Now, of course, within the online category, we have social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, etc. And we've been tracking the use of uh, social media for news uh, in different countries uh, since around 2013. And what we see is that from around 2013 to 2016, there was consistent growth uh, in the use of social media for news. So the proportion who said they used it uh, each week rose from around 25% in 2013 uh, to over 50% in some cases in 2016. And as you can see since then, the figures have kind of flattened off. So we might not be seeing a huge amount of growth uh, in the future. We certainly haven't seen it in the last three years or so. But it's, it, these are quite high levels. So roughly half uh, of people say they use social media for news in some way uh, in, per week. 
if we dig a little bit deeper and look at the individual platforms that people say they use for news, we can see that uh, in most countries, with a few exceptions, uh, Facebook is the dominant uh, platform for news use. Use has hovered around 35% uh, of the national population in each country since 2014. Uh, we saw a slight decrease uh, from 2016 to 2018. Um, during this period, this was there's a kind of a bit of a backlash against Facebook as a source of news, uh, but also Facebook made changes to their algorithm, which deprioritized news uh, in relation to other content. So we weren't surprised when we saw that slight uh, decrease. But in the same period, we've seen other networks becoming increasingly uh, important uh, for news use, such as uh, WhatsApp. Of course, these are very different kinds of social networks uh, to Facebook, but they are together lumped under the social media category. So WhatsApp use has grown from around 10% to 16% uh, in the last five years. Instagram, similar, sort of not huge, but steady growth. Uh, and Twitter has remained at around 10% for that entire period. Of course, we shouldn't just think about social media when we're thinking about the, the ways in which algorithms might uh, influence uh, our news use. There's a range of other services that to different extents rely on algorithms. So search engines, email, mobile alerts, aggregators, and so on. Most of these rely on algorithms in some way to, uh, to deliver news to people. And it's interesting that when we ask people what their main way of getting news online is, only around a third say that it's by going direct to uh, websites of news providers or apps from news providers like BBC News, The Guardian app, uh, and so on. The other two thirds say that their main way of getting news is via what we call the side door. So uh, services like search, social, etc. And as I say, some of these uh, rely on algorithms uh, to more or less uh, to varying degrees. <clears throat> and I think that, I mean, we do see a lot of national variation here. So in a country like the UK, the direct figure is more like 50% uh, and all the others are slightly lower. In a country like Spain, uh, we kind of see an opposite effect where social media is simply more popular. And in the UK, the BBC app and the BBC websites are a key destination uh, for people to go direct to. But I think when it comes to sort of trying to understand the potential scale of the issue when it comes to filter bubbles, it's clear, I think, that the potential is there for us to be concerned. It's clear that algorithms and algorithmically driven services are very important for people, and a lot of people are using them uh, to get news online. So before we dig a little bit deeper, I think it's worth making an absolutely key distinction uh, when it comes to personalization. I think we can distinguish, and this is a, a distinction that's made by uh, a paper published in 2016, between self-selected personalization and pre-selected personalization. Now, self-selected personalization refers to the personalization that we do voluntarily uh, to ourselves. And this is particularly important when it comes uh, to news use. People have always made decisions in order to personalize their news use. They made decisions about what newspapers to buy, what TV channels to watch, and at the same time, which ones they would avoid. And this is by academics, this is called selective exposure. We know that it's influenced by a range of different things, such as people's interest levels in news, 
their political beliefs, uh, and so on. This is something that has pretty much always happened. And then we can make a distinction between that and what several people have called pre-selected personalization. <coughs> and this is the personalization that is done to people, sometimes by algorithms, sometimes uh, without their knowledge. And this, of course, relates directly to the idea of filter bubbles in particular, um, because algorithms are possibly making choices uh, on behalf of people, and they may not be aware of it. But the reason this distinction is particularly important is because we should avoid comparing pre-selected personalization and its effects with a world where people do not do any kind of personalization uh, to themselves. So we can't assume that offline or when people are self-selecting uh, news, they're doing it in a completely random way. They're always engaging in personalization uh, to some extent. And of course, if we want to understand the extent of pre-selected personalization, we have to compare it with the realistic alternative and not a hypothetical ideal. And I think it's important in particular not to romanticize the nature of offline news use uh, for many people. One of the first uh, studies we did on this area looked at uh, how people self-select news online compared to offline. This is data from the UK. And what we did is we looked at the extent to which audiences for particular news outlets overlapped with one another. The, the map on the uh, left shows uh, the overlap between offline uh, news audiences. So we can see the largest bubble here is the BBC as the most popular offline news source. And its audience, for example, we know overlaps with that for the Evening Standard. And the lines indicate the connections between the outlets where there is overlap. But if we compare that to offline, we can see there's actually a sort of denser network online. And this is because when people are offline, they stick to a couple of their preferred news stories, sorry, news sources. Uh, they dig very deeply into those news sources, but they don't tend to deviate from them. Online, it's a bit different. So the audiences for individual outlets are smaller because people spread their news consumption thinly across lots of different outlets. Often, uh, online news from different outlets is free, so people can sample uh, news from different sources. And we can see that um, essentially that self-selected personalization is more prominent online, sorry, offline than it is uh, online. This is why it's important to compare online news use with a, with a realistic alternative and not an ideal. So what about social media uh, in particular? What is the effect it has, using social media has, on people's news diets? So we, we can say with reasonable confidence that social media combines self-selected personalization with pre-selected personalization. So the news that people see on their feed is a result of uh, the connections between their friends that people have made. If we use Facebook as an example, we also know that people choose to follow certain news organizations. Uh, and at the same time, a, a sort of choosing not to follow others, in essence. And of course, that, that raises the possibility that algorithms essentially might be hiding news from people uh, which they're not interested in or from outlets they don't particularly like. And we can imagine how this happens on a, on a Facebook feed. It's not infinite, uh, that people have a limited amount of time. So the decisions made by algorithms are going to affect what people see when they're using Facebook. So what we did is we compared the news diets of people who do not use social media uh, with two other groups of people. 
one group who say they intentionally use social media for news, and another group, which we'll focus on here, are the group that say they don't really use social media for news very much, but they do see news when they're on social media for other purposes. So we took data from the UK, the USA, Italy, uh, and Australia, and studied the effect of using social media on different demographic groups and the, the use of different social networks. And what we found when we compared people who don't use social media to people who do use social media, we saw that people who use social media for news, uh, particularly if they're using it for other reasons, are incidentally exposed, as academics call it, uh, to news whilst they're there. And what this does is it boosts the amount of news uh, that people use compared to the group that don't use social media at all. We see the group that do use social media use more online news sources and use more different online news sources. Interestingly, we found that the effect was stronger for people who are younger, perhaps because they're more adept at using social media, more active on social media. But, but crucially, it's also stronger for people who aren't, who don't have high levels of interest uh, in the news. So this is suggesting to us uh, that what's happening is that people are logging onto social networks uh, for news, sorry, for not for other purposes, to chat with their friends, to upload posts and so on, but in the process of seeing news. And we found the effect as well was stronger for face, sorry, stronger for YouTube and Twitter than it was uh, for Facebook, which is important to keep in mind. The effect from Facebook is quite weak, but for YouTube and Twitter is relatively strong. And I think it's this, what this highlights is that most people, particularly people who use social media, are not terribly interested in the news. This is something that we measure. And this becomes particularly important on the web because this is a high choice media environment where people, when they sit down in front of their computers or take out their smartphones, they can look at almost anything they want in, in a roughly sort of similar way. Uh, and that makes it very easy for people who are not interested in news to essentially opt out of it. Uh, but because these people often use social media, social media is incidentally exposing people to news even when they're not looking for it. And we can also think about search engines. So clearly search engines are different uh, to social media because when people load up a search engine, they're intentionally trying to find news if that's what they're there for. Um, but there's still the possibility when you search for a particular topic like Brexit here, uh, it's possible that search engines will use algorithmic selection based on the data that we have, uh, has been collected when we've searched for things in the past to make a guess at what we will be most interested in or what sources we would prefer to see. So the possibility again exists that when people log on to search engines, algorithmic selection will essentially trap them in a filter bubble. So again, what we did is we compared the news diets of people who search for news <coughs> with the news diets of people who say they don't use search engines for news uh, in four countries. And we studied the, the, the news diets that these two groups have in terms of what we call diversity and balance. So what we found is that a process of automated serendipity effectively diversifies people's news diets. So firstly, people who use search engines for news, on average, use more sources of news uh, than people that don't. But more importantly, uh, they're more likely to use sources from both the left and the right. And what this means is that their news diets that result uh, have a sort of more equal balance between sources on the left and sources on the right. People who don't use social media, who are relying mainly on uh, self-selection, tend to have 
fairly imbalanced news diets, which either have more right-leaning or more left-leaning sources, but people that use search engines tend to have a more even split uh, between the two. And I think this is in line with different studies in the same area that have looked at this problem in a slightly different way. So uh, this study uh, look, compared search results uh, from different uh, types of people, particularly people uh, who are Republicans and Democrats in the US. And what they found essentially was that the results that people got when they searched for political topics were more or less the same. So there was no real evidence that people with different views were getting uh, different search results. One of the problems with relying on survey data uh, is that people are not great at remembering what news sources uh, they used uh, in the recent past. Uh, this, is, this has been a sort of consistent problem uh, in research in this area for some time. But when it comes to online use, we can explore alternative methodologies. So in order to sort of put this to the test, we uh, tracked the web use of a panel uh, of people in the UK. This is just for the UK only. And we looked at uh, how people got to different news stories and we compared situations when people go directly to when people go to news via Facebook, via Twitter and a range of other different services. And what we found was that if people, the more people go the more people use direct access, this is indicated on this axis, uh, the, the, the diversity of their news diets uh, tends to drop. Whereas the more people use sources like Facebook and Twitter, diversity uh, slightly uh, increases. So what this means is that not only people are using more sources of news, they're using uh, different sources and the balance between those different sources uh, increases or, or improves from a diversity point of view. People who use lots of, who use direct access the most tend to keep going to the same source over and over again. In the UK, this is normally the BBC, which even though they use lots of news, it's all from the same source. Now, this is, the, this is a sort of summary of the, of the work we've done in this area. But as I said at the beginning, I think it's fair to say that this is a reasonable sort of characterization. It's fairly representative of work in this area uh, as a whole. So there are numerous studies, some from uh, researchers in other departments at this university, like Dubois and Blank, and also the Flaxman study, that either find no uh, weak, no more weak evidence of filter bubbles, or at best, mixed evidence. When it comes to finding some very strong evidence of these kind of effects that we talked about uh, at the beginning, there's really an absence of any studies that find any, any strong evidence uh, of this. That's not to say, of course, that everything is rosy when it comes to using social media and search engines for news. It's not that I think there's, a, there's no problem at all. I think the problem is just slightly different to how we've uh, previously thought about it. And I'll give you some examples to show you what I mean. So I think that even though we might be seeing more diversity when we use social media and search, it's possible that diversity consists of more partisan or polarizing uh, news sources. And there's some evidence uh, to support this. So in this study here, uh, a team of researchers in the US looked at uh, people's exposure to uh, the opposing side uh, in Twitter. So if they were Republicans, uh, they were fed uh, lots of messages on Twitter from uh, Democrats 
and vice versa. And they looked at the effect and they measured attitudes before and after this process. And what they found is that the more people paid attention to uh, messages from the opposing side, which we might think of as diversity, their attitudes began to polarize. They became stronger in their original beliefs. We've approached the same issue slightly differently. So what we did is we measured the level of polarization that exists in different news environments uh, in different countries. What we did here was we looked at the audiences for particular news outlets, and we said, well, how different is that audience in terms of its composition of left and right-leaning people as compared to the population uh, as a whole, which is represented by the midpoint here? So in the US, unsurprisingly, we see that Fox has uh, an online news, sorry, a news audience that is much more right-leaning uh, than the population as a whole, but for an outlet like CNN, uh, is much more left-leaning than the population as a whole. Yahoo News in the US, which essentially aggregates news from lots of different sources, unsurprisingly finds itself uh, in the middle. Now, in the US, we can, we can essentially say this is quite a polarized news environment because the bubbles or the audiences are much more dispersed than they are in some other countries. And this gives us a way of measuring the level of news audience polarization in different countries. But what we can also do in those countries is compare online to offline. And what we found when we looked at 12 different countries was that in eight out of 12 cases, online news audiences are slightly more polarized, slightly more dispersed than they are offline. In some countries, the numbers are either pretty much the same or uh, offline is slightly more polarized, but in general, online news environments do seem to be more polarized, perhaps because they consist of a range of different outlets that either don't exist offline. Uh, I'm thinking, I suppose, of some of the high partisan sites in the UK uh, and the US, but also the fact that content from mainstream outlets might be different online compared to offline. And of course, there's perhaps more of an incentive for uh, some news outlets to produce more sort of partisan or more engaging content uh, online as compared to offline. So I think to sort of sum up, it's not that there are uh, no problems with uh, online news use. I think it's just we've misunderstood them. And I think the problem with focusing on filter bubbles, not only does it potentially cause us to misunderstand the mechanisms uh, of play, but it also might be distracting us from slightly more pressing problems. And I think the reason this, this is important is because that some of these problems in some way are connected with uh, the use of platforms. It's not that the platforms are causing these problems. That would be far too simplistic, but it's, they are part of the picture. And I'll try and explain what I mean. So I think one of the most pressing problems is how do we fund journalism uh, in the 21st century? And I think a good place to start is by thinking about this quote from the media economist Robert Pickard says that news itself has never been financially viable as a market-based good and has always been primarily financed by arrangements based on income derived from sources other than selling news to consumers. So what this means is that news on its own is not profitable. Uh, there has to be other sources of income. Uh, in the private sector, this is predominantly advertising. Of course, the public sector works slightly differently, but news in over most of the 20th century didn't pay for itself. And this is a familiar picture uh, to many people uh, in the UK. It shows the steady decline of print. 
This is something we know is happening in a range of different countries at different speeds, but the direction of travel is almost always the same. And then some outlets like The Independent in the UK, when they went uh, online only, they saw the amount of time that people spent uh, with their brand fell off a cliff. So this is the amount of time that people spend online with The Independent. This is the amount of time that people spend with The Independent in print. When it stopped printing, that attention disappeared and didn't transfer online. Then there's another problem. Uh, online, we, we conducted a study to see whether people can remember uh, uh, where certain headlines that we know they'd read, uh, if they could remember what source they came from. Essentially, we tracked people. And then after we'd seen what news stories they'd read, we gave them a survey 24 hours later and asked them to identify the source. If people went direct to that new source online, they were correct 81% of the time. If they came via search or via social media, they were correct less than half the time. So this shows, I think, that uh, people's sort of engagement with news and the way they think about the source of that news when they arrive via platforms is completely different as to when they go there uh, directly. This is all compounded by the fact that as many of the business models based on advertising are struggling, paying for online news is not something that's become particularly widespread uh, in most countries. So although we've seen growth in the number of newspapers that are attempting paywalls, it's still true that only a small minority in most countries uh, pay for online news. We've seen some slight increases in paying since 2014, in particular in the US, which is this chart here. Uh, following the election of Donald Trump, but the numbers since then have remained pretty flat. And in most countries, uh, Nordic region aside, the figure is about one in 10 or less. This is even true in countries like the UK and Germany, which historically have very high levels of print news consumption. When it comes to online consumption, it's simply not making up for the declines. Then there's the fact that uh, news publishers are competing with a whole range of different uh, services that are asking for people's money. Uh, this is the number of global paid subscribers to a range of different uh, entertainment services and other different things. So Netflix has roughly 130 million subscribers uh, globally, Spotify 87 million, PlayStation Plus, which is an online gaming service, 34 million, Match.com, online dating, 8 million, New York Times, which certainly aims for a global audience, even though it's based in the US, has around 3 million, uh, had around 3 million global subscribers when this data was collected. And the FT in the UK, even though it's very much considered a success story, and I think that's true, uh, it's worth keeping in mind how small it is in terms of subscribers when compared to some of these other services. So it's not that, as I say, it's not that social media or search is, is causing any of these difficulties, that's not true, but they are part of the picture and in combination with other factors, they're creating a situation which is making things very difficult uh, for news publishers. So again, I think the sort of talk of filter bubbles is perhaps a distraction from an issue like this. And I think the same is true when it comes to another really crucial trend in news at the moment, and that's to do with trust. So. We can see when we look at the proportion of people who say they trust most news most of the time across a range of different countries. In most cases, the figure who say the, the proportion of people who say they do trust most news most of the time is, is lower than 50%. And 
for most of the countries uh, we look at. And more importantly than that, I think uh, it's, it's slowly going down. So if we look at those countries where we have data going back to 2015, we can see sort of not huge, but steady declines uh, of around 10 percentage points from 2015 to 2019 in countries that used to enjoy very high levels of trust, uh, like, and still do in some respects, but, but I'm thinking of countries like Finland, Germany, to a lesser extent, the UK. The blue lines show uh, those countries where trust in the news has gone up. And you can see that these tended to be the countries which had low levels of trust to begin with. So on the whole, we're seeing sort of falling, uh, declining levels of trust uh, in most countries. Again, it's not that uh, we can say that social media or searches is in any way sort of res directly responsible for this. <coughs> However, we do know that when we ask people, uh, people tend to trust social media and search less as a source of news than they trust news in the whole. So it's, it's possible, uh, even though we haven't put this to the test, that this is contributing the fact that there are more sources of news available than ever before, more choice, potentially more contradictory opinions. Uh, it's possible that this is contributing in some way uh, to declining levels of trust. And again, this is, this is different to concerns, I think, about filter bubbles and echo chambers. So I think to, to just kind of conclude, I think at the moment, most of the, the best available independent empirical evidence seems to suggest that online news use on search and social media is more diverse. But there's a possibility that this diversity uh, is causing, in some way, some kind of polarization uh, in both attitudes and also news use. I think this is interesting because in some ways it's, it's the opposite of what the, the filter bubble, bubble hypothesis predicted. The filter bubble hypothesis states that we'll actually get less diversity and there'll be negative consequences from that. So in a way, the end result might be the same, but I think the filter bubble hypothesis kind of misunderstands the mechanisms that are at play. Of course, we know that platforms uh, are changing the way they serve news uh, to people all the time. And the way that people are getting news is also changing. So we need to critically examine and carry on doing this, uh, the effects of algorithmic selection on news use, because what was true in the, in the last few years isn't necessarily going to be true uh, in the future. And perhaps most importantly of all, and this is an argument I've taken from uh, a recent book by Axel Bruns, who's an Australian uh, academic in Queensland, he argues that the focus on filter bubbles possibly is preventing us from properly confronting the deeper causes of divisions uh, in both politics and society. And I think it's absolutely crucial that while we keep examining platforms and their effect on news use, we don't fall into this trap uh, of ignoring some of the more potentially more, more important factors that are creating some of the, the problems that we face at the moment. Thank you.